is Our American Stories. And our next story, well, it's about a 17-year-old kid named Bob Heft who designed the 50-star American flag we all fly proudly to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. After learning about Betsy Ross, you probably didn't give much thought to how the subsequent U.S. flags were designed. It might seem like a no-brainer flag makers just added a new star for every new state, right? Well, it turns out not that simple. Each new flag has a very careful design, and the arrangement of the stars must be precise and symmetrical. And for the flag we know today, that arrangement was designed by a junior in high school from Ohio. It was 1958, and America only contained 48 United States. The flag at the time featured six rows of eight stars. Bob Heff's history teacher assigned a class project where each student had to bring in something they made. Bob Heft loved flags, and he loved politics. So, having been inspired by the Betsy Ross story the class just studied, and seeing the news that Alaska was poised to become our nation's 49th state, with Hawaii soon behind, Heft decided to make a 50-star flag. So, he made some adjustments to his parents' 48-star flag, brought it in, and triumphantly placed it on his teacher's desk. Here's Bob. In American history class, we had to do an outside-of-class project. We could make or do whatever we wanted. Like a science fair or something like that, you bring the project in. The Betsy Ross story uh, intrigued me. And my mom and dad, uh, they had a a 48-star flag they received as a wedding present, which, of course, meant a lot to them. Well, I took a scissors and cut it up. Heft's mother walked in from the kitchen and found him cutting up their family flag and promptly began scolding him. She told his father when he got home, and Heft received another tongue lashing. I had always been in the Boy Scouts, and I had always been patriotic, Heft told the Lancaster Eagle Gazette in 2007. They wanted to know why I would turn on the flag. I had never sewn in my life. I watched my mom sew, but I'd never sewn. And since making the flag of her country, I've never sewn again. So anyhow, we get to class. I had my flag on the teacher's desk. And the teacher said, what's this thing on my desk? So I got up and I approached the desk, and I'm shaking like a leaf. And he said, why you got too many stars? You don't even know how many states we have. And uh, he gave me the grade of a B minus. Now, that, a B-minus isn't that bad of a grade. However, uh, a friend of mine, Jim, he picked up five leaves off the ground. He's taping these leaves down to the notebook and the labeling, elm, hickory, maple. And the teacher gave him the grade of an A. I was really, I was, I was upset. The teacher said, if you don't like the grade, get it accepted in Washington, then come back and see me. I might consider changing the grade. Bob arrived home that day with his class project. And I had it in a plastic bag, and I threw it on the sofa, and my mother came in, she said, supper's ready. I said, I'm not hungry. She said, what's wrong? I said, and I never talked about a teacher. I said, this stupid teacher gave me a B minus on the flag. And then she really hacked me. I said, that's more I'd have given you, because she was really dead set against this. Two years later. I'd written 21 letters to the White House, made 18 phone calls. Now, you can imagine when my mom got the phone bell. What's this number? I said, well, 
Mom, that's the White House. So anyhow, I uh, got this call, and it said, now, the President of the United States is calling you later on today. Well, at that time, Eisenhower was president, and he comes on the phone, and he says, is this Robert G. Heft? And I said, yes, sir, but you can just call me Bob. And he says, I want to know the possibility of you coming to Washington, D.C. on July 4th for the official adoption uh, of the uh, new flag. Bob received this call from President Eisenhower at his new place of employment. Here's what happened next. Well, I've been at this company 11 days. I said, well, wait a minute. My boss is standing here. I reached down, pushed the red button on the phone, put the President of the United States on hold. What are you doing? I said, I've got to talk to you. He said, you just put the President of the United States on hold. I said, he wants me to come to Washington. He said, well, tell him you'll be there. I said, look, I don't have any sick leave. I don't have any vacation. Because you know your first job out of high school, you don't want to mess up and just lose it. And he said, get him back on the phone. We'll work out the details. We'll charge it off to executive leave or something. But get him back. He was really upset. And we did a lot of military contracts. I think they probably thought, here's this kid that's been working there for 11 days is going to mess up future contracts, uh, you know, uh, putting the president on hold. So I picked up the phone, put the white button, put the phone up and said, uh, Dwight, are you still there? Because, you know, I didn't know how you properly address it. And, and they're, they're cracking up. Oh, my Lord, here's Bob talking to Buddy Dwight and stuff. Years following his talk with Dwight, Bob preserved this historic moment and paid a visit to his old teacher. And so uh, I have the grade book. It's encased in plastic. It's kept in a bank. My teacher, and he said, I guess if it's good enough for Washington, it's good enough for me. I hereby change the grade to an A. Decades after, Heft inspired people young and old with his follow your dream story. He became a high school teacher, college professor, and a seven-term mayor of Napoleon, Ohio. He spoke extensively, as many as 200 engagements a year, and visited the White House 14 times under nine presidents. Heff died on December 12, 2009 at the age of 68, but his legacy survives every time we fly his 50-star creation. And if the U.S. ever adds a 51st state, Heff's got that flag covered too. Back in 1958, he designed a 51-star version that uses six rows of stars, alternating between rows of nine and eight. This would make Heft the only person to design two United States flags. Bob said in 2007, an idea doesn't do any good if you don't pursue it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
stepped in church on Sunday morning Grandma's hand played a tambourine so well Grandma's hand This is Our American Stories, and today we want to bring your attention to an amazing documentary that is currently available on Netflix and Hulu. A documentary that will make you laugh, think, and cry. And this segment you're about to hear is a preview of what you'll see in this mind-opening film. And we love to bring you things from the culture and pass them along to you. And you may have a life we don't. We love checking out all this stuff and sharing it with you. Alive Inside is a joyous cinematic exploration of music's capacity to reawaken our souls and uncover the deepest parts of our humanity. It chronicles the astonishing experiences of individuals suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's around the country who have been revitalized through the simple experience of listening to music. So what's the big deal? Why would anyone go out of their way to give someone with Alzheimer's an iPod? Take a listen to this 90-year-old woman who tragically can't remember much about her life on this earth when she's asked about her childhood. How old are you? How old am I? Yeah. I'm 90 years old. What was life like when you were a little girl? Oh, God, I forgot so much. I can't, I can't. I've forgotten so much. I'm very sorry. Oh, it's okay. What have you forgotten? I've forgotten what I used to do after I became a young lady. I've forgotten so much. I can't remember. I've been here, I've been here, I've been here 90 years. And if I could remember... I would tell you, but I don't, I can't remember. Dan Cohen is founder and director of Music and Memory, which promotes the use of digital music players with individualized playlists to improve the quality of life for elders. Listen to what happens when he plays this same woman, some Louis Armstrong. I want to try an experiment. What? I want you to try and let the music take you back into your memories, to travel back into time. And then we'll stop, and you can tell me where it took you. Um, okay. um, you ready? Mm-hmm. Yes, I want to be in that number. I went to Saint. He's saying when the Saints go by, marching by, and it takes me back to my school days. I would like to hit the number. Mama told us not to go listen to him. We would sneak off at night, bring back pictures from the dance. And I worked in King County nine years. I was working at Fort Jackson. And my son, on February the 4th, was 69. I didn't know I could talk so What you just heard was an instant illumination of this woman's soul through the power of music. What a great God moment. But you need to watch this documentary called Alive Inside to get the full effect. Seeing the faces, the body language of elderly people who instantly light up upon hearing the music of their youth is something we all need to witness for ourselves. Next, we're introduced to another old-timer named Henry. Henry is borderline catatonic and doesn't recognize his daughter. Henry, speak to me. I want to hear your voice. Can you talk to me? Mm-hmm. So let me hear you. Tell me your full name. 
Henry has dementia and he needs total assistance with all his activities of daily living. Hi, Papa. Huh? How you doing? Huh? Who am I? I'm your daughter. Daughter? Mm hmm. Which one? Wait a minute. I don't know. I got two. I don't know. Listen to Henry after a nurse puts headphones on his ears. He asks if he can sing along. Then a nurse describes his reaction. I, I would sing with this. You can if you like. When I first met him, he was very isolated, and he used to always sit on the unit with his head like this. He didn't really talk to much people. And then when I introduced the music to him, this is his reaction every since. <laughs> Everyone in that room with Henry was blown away by his reaction. Dan Cohen, the man behind this effort to give music back to the elderly who suffer from dementia, talked to Henry right after he listened to that song. Here is their remarkable conversation. Do you like music? Yeah, I'm crazy about music. You play beautiful music, beautiful sound. Did you like music when you were young? Yes, yes. I went to big dances and things. What was your favorite music when you were young? Well, well I guess Cab uh, Calloway was my number one band guy. I liked it. Isn't that incredible? This man couldn't recognize his own daughter, but after just a few minutes of listening to an iPod, could remember his favorite musician, Cab Calloway, as he burst out into a scat. Henry was then asked what his favorite song was, and what the favorite part of his life was. Listen to what happens next. What's your favorite song? Oh, I'll be on the other Christmas. You can count plans on me with plenty of snow, mistletoe. Present, wrap around you free. Ow, Christmas Eve will carry me where that love light beam. Henry, Ma, yeah. What was the favorite part of your life? What was your favorite part of your life? Of my life. It was part of my life was riding a bicycle, grocery boy. What'd you like about riding a bicycle? That's why I made my money. You need no money. Isn't that true about all the favorite parts of our life? So what's going on here? This film goes on to explain that music is recorded in the part of our brain that is the last place dementia affects. So why isn't this being implemented in nursing homes across this country and everywhere? Dan Cohn explains the problem. I can sit down and write out a script for $1,000 a month antidepressant. No problem. Nobody asks any questions. If I want to provide a person with a $40 personal music system, that will take a lot of work. Because personal music, 
doesn't count as a medical intervention. You see what I'm saying? It's sort of a side thing over here. The real business, trust me, is in the pill bottle. Open for me. All Our healthcare right. system imagines the human being to be a very complicated machine. And we figured out how to turn the dials. Blood pressure, oh, turn that down, you know? Blood sugar, oh, turn that down. We have medicines that can adjust the dials. We haven't done anything, medically speaking, to touch the heart and soul of a patient. One more of the many elderly in this film suffering from dementia is a woman named Mary Lou. Here, she struggles to identify kitchen utensils before she is given an iPod. Listen to what she says immediately after listening to the Beach Boys. What do you call that? Um, it's a... For, uh, sc- Knife? No. Fork? Or spoon? Would you like to hear some music? Would you like to listen to some music? Sure, why not? Here you go. Over I your don't head. know how to do this. Just straight over your ears and your head. Perfect. See a little button in the middle? That's that? Yeah, right in the middle. Click it once. Whoa! Want to stop the music? Uh, oh, thank you so much. Okay. So there's a, a tears of joy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just want to make sure. Oh, yeah. That's the best thing I've ever, ever had, this thing. It can't get away from me if I'm in this place. I thought you were going to grow wings. I was trying. I, I, you... <laughs> <laughs> this incredible documentary concludes with a beautiful message on the importance and power of music in all of our lives. And we know, we know that to be the case. What a remarkable thing this man did. We know music has the power to change lives. We know it triggers memory. But this guy went out and did it. And let me tell you, if you want to help or you want to know more or learn more, Go to musicandmemory.org. That's musicandmemory.org. There you can learn more about Dan Cohen's remarkable mission to bring music to those of us who need it more than ever. What a selfless, creative, and generous way to honor those in their final days. More after these messages. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And if you like what you hear each night on this show, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our five best stories each week. And by the way, send the link to friends if you like what you hear. And now it's time for our twice-monthly series, Rule of Law, on how this thing called the rule of law silently shapes the world around us without us even knowing it. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story. Russia has quite a history with music. Here's native son Slava Rostropovich speaking alongside a translator. My mother carried me for 10 months. I tell mother, you have extra months. Why you not make for me beautiful face? 
and mother tell me, my son, I was busy with make to you beautiful hands. Hands that could conduct and would reinvent cello playing, impacting who's now the world's most famous cellist, Yo-Yo Ma. That recording just made my hair stand on end. I, I couldn't sleep that night. And this Russian history also includes pianist Vladimir Horowitz. I believe that if you practice too long time, it becomes mechanical. I like brushing the teeth. I believe to, to do it every day, but not too long. I don't practice more than one hour and a half. Never. But I never miss a day. Never miss a day. James Hilton wrote, If by some dispensation a man born deaf were to be given hearing for a single hour, he might well spend the whole time with Horowitz. But history could have easily had it that both Horowitz and Rostropovich might as well have been the deaf ones. Their artistry never showcased on the world stage, given the country they were born in. Every one of us has some kind of religious frustration. Where in one way we're happy, in another way we're unhappy. I have my own, you think I have everything, but I wanted to be a composer. That was his plan until 1917, when some other people couldn't care less that he had plans. And then we had the little revolution. <laughs> he laughs because otherwise he'd have to cry. The Russian Revolution, led by communist Vladimir Lenin, would go on to kill four million of his countrymen through executions, death camps, and state-caused famine. I'm from well-to-do family, you see. My father was a very important engineer. But when the revolution came, his father's great success became their greatest liability. He lost everything. The communist, uninterested in any high-minded concepts like property rights or law, took everything. Horowitz recounted, I saw with my own eyes how they threw our piano out the window. He was a teenager, suddenly without anything, and he did something about it. I started to give concerts, said that they gave me my education, now I have to give them back something. And so I played till today. <laughs> Those concerts would immediately help take care of his family, whereas composing wouldn't. And so away it went. And a whole 53 years later, Slava Rostropovich didn't have any better luck with his interactions with their government. In this moment, government just closed my mouth and said, no, please not express something new. Slava's first interaction with the rule of their whims over the rule of law was when the Soviet regime forced his teacher Dmitry Shostakovich to leave the Moscow Conservatory. His crime? Producing music that was too chaotic, too innovative, at least for their preferred brand of socialist realism. Their official statement declared that Shostakovich had, quote, anti-democratic tendencies alien to the Soviet people. Alien 
according to them, not according to any actual law. So in protest, Slava left the conservatory too. What he gives to us in his music is what he terms, he called himself a foot soldier in the service of music. And I think of him in that sense, it would be the foot soldier reporting on the triumphs and tragedies of the world. Slava was a nobody when he left, so it didn't catch the Soviets' attention. But when he became somewhat of a somebody, he spoke out again and again, not using words. It was this composition, Czech composer Antonin Dvorak's cello concerto in B minor, that Slava decided to perform in London on the very same day that the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia to put an end to their democratic reforms. An invasion of 200,000 troops, 2,000 tanks, and 72 of Dvorak's countrymen would die. And Slava, to make sure that his audience knew exactly what he was doing, stood up after the performance and proudly hoisted the Czech composer's score. Let's just say those Soviets weren't thrilled and it was nothing compared to Slava's next strike, an open letter to the state-run newspaper, Pravda. I remember and would like to remind you of our newspapers in 1948, how much nonsense was written about giants of our music who are now honored. Now, when one looks at the newspapers of those years, one becomes unbearably ashamed. I do not speak about political or economic questions in our country. There are people who know these better than I. But explain to me, please, why in our literature and art so often people absolutely incompetent in this field have the final word. Why are they given the right to discredit our art in the eyes of our people? Every man must have the right to think independently and express his opinion about what he knows and what he has personally thought about, experienced, and not merely to express with slightly different variations the opinion which has been inculcated in him. I know that after my letter there will undoubtedly be an opinion about me, but I am not afraid of it. I openly say what I think. To state the obvious, Pravda didn't run that letter. This, along with Slava, giving refuge to the era's most infamous dissident, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, would be their last straw with him. Cancel my, my tour in the West in May 74. I go out from Russia without my family because Minister of Culture tell me I must go out. Not because Slava violated some democratically passed laws that constituted treason. No, because he did something much worse. He violated his dictators personal sense of pride, and that couldn't be tolerated. For Vladimir Horowitz, at least he got to leave on his own terms. In 1925, he requested and received a visa to study in Berlin. And I smuggled some dollars 
I remember I put it in the shoes and I started my career in Europe. He never became a student. He lied. And he was free, he hoped. And when we come back, we continue our Rule of Law series and the stories of Vladimir Horowitz and Slava Rostropovich. You may not be a fan of classical music, but freedom, we can hear those sounds throughout this and the next segment. Here on Our American Stories, we continue after these messages. Our American Stories, and we return to the stories of Russian musicians Vladimir Horowitz and Slava Rostropovich, and how their careers were crushed by the lawlessness of the communist government. Just kicked out of his homeland, Slava goes to America and makes his own statement. I will not utter one single lie in order to return. I would never see Russia and my friends again. The Soviets tried to make good on this when four years later they formally stripped him of his citizenship. Here's his friends on how he took the news. He was wounded. Very deep. For Maestro, I'm sure it must have been incredibly difficult to not to be able to return to his homeland. And I think that made his art only more richer. For Vladimir Horowitz, producing art that was richer was about the furthest thing from his mind. He was just praying that his debut in New York's Carnegie Hall on January 12, 1928 would go well. My debut with Tchaikovsky concert, I knew that I can make such a wild sound and such a speed, and such a noise, and such a things that the public will be completely crazy. And I wanted to do it, but subconsciously, it was in order to have success not to return to my country. I wanted to get success in the whole world, just not to get back. Because if I would not have success in Europe and America, I had to go back. He didn't have to go back and for the rest of his life made these United States his home. It was a debut unlike any other. The New York Times reported that the piano smoked at the keys and that during most of the intermission the audience continued to applaud and to call the pianist back to the stage. The New York Times' writer Olin Downs continued that it was the wildest welcome a pianist has received in many seasons and described the performance as a whirlwind of virtuoso interpretation, amazing technique, irresistible youth, electrifying temperament, a tornado unleashed from the steps. The late Goddard Lieberson wrote, 
With a generosity not always typical of performing artists, a great pianist friend of mine said to me concerning the recent debut of a certain pianist, Debut? Debut? There has been no debut since that of Vladimir Horowitz. That was a debut. Unlike Horowitz, who would make his home in the financial center of America, New York, Rostropovich would park his artistry in a different kind of power center. And Washington loves celebrity, loves fame, loves glamour, and my goodness, he had that. And I think both Washington and Slava loved the fact that this escapee from communism was going to head the orchestra in the capital of the United States. Here's members of the National Symphony Orchestra on his impact. He was able to express what he needed to uh, with his body, body language, with his facial expressions. He wanted it to be devastating, devastating. Frenicky, when you come in in the first movement of Tchaikovsky 6, after quiet bass clarinet, six women in front row must die of heart attack. He was trying to get across, you know, he just couldn't get it across. And finally he said to the upper string, he says, you must play this like you have fork and brain. That got the point, just the image of that, like, mm, got the point across. And immediately was there. Like one time he, he said, he wanted the symbol to sound like every glass in Washington, D.C. would break at the same time. Every water glass, you know. He, 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 he was a, maybe over the top, but he got his point across. And ultimately, the, the musical impact was there. I first make fire in my heart, in my body, because before I make a beat, I imagined this sound before I make a beat. I was born anew, Slava said. I found a great deal more in music than I did when I lived in the Soviet Union. I re-examined everything, and I could see everything more vividly. All composers, even Beethoven, came to mean more. Unlike in the Soviet Union, he was free to re-examine everything. Nothing was beyond examination. Nothing stood in the way of artistic expression as long as he didn't violate anyone else's rights to do the same in their lives. He was in America where the rule of law, stable, knowable law, and not the changing whims of some government official reigned. The same force of freedom worked in Vladimir Horowitz's life, allowing him to become known by many as the greatest pianist of the 21st century. My father-in-law said that the, the, all the geniuses, they cannot be geniuses 24 hours. We have, <laughs> we, have, we have very big works of Beethoven and Mozart too, you know. <laughs> During his exile from his homeland, Rostropovich often described himself as an ambassador of the Russian people and Russian music, just not their rotten government. And in 1986, in the wake of the Soviet Union's increasing march towards freedom and law, Vladimir Horowitz announced a return tour for performances in Moscow and Leningrad, his first time back since 1925 to the communist-controlled society that had taken everything from his family and that he had vowed never 
to visit again. I didn't see my, my family for six years. I don't know how they look, how they are. When I left Russia, my niece was nine years old, now 70. His niece met him at his Moscow performance along with this rousing crowd. Horowitz worried that his eccentric style might be unwelcome in the bland communist society of forced uniformity. Maybe my playing will seem strange to these people, he told the New York Times. Maybe I'm too romantic. Now, Horowitz might have been right about those government officials, but he was wrong about his people. And then I spent all the night here because I wanted to get the ticket by all means, but afraid to miss it. From my childhood, it was my dream to hear Horowitz. And now my dream will come true. The Times reported that many in the audience cried unabashedly bringing him back on stage for six curtain calls after he had had three encores. Mr. Horowitz became something of a sensation in a city unaccustomed to his kind of flamboyance. And Slava Rostropovich's unexpected return to the motherland came three years later when the Berlin Wall fell. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The wall that the East Germans put up in 1961 to keep its people in will now be breached by anybody who wants to leave. Dancing everywhere, East and West joining in a celebration of a united future. And that is a feeling you must, you must understand. And you have, the only thing you have to do is dancing. Slava flew to Berlin as quickly as he could with his cello and played an impromptu concert at the Crumbling Wall. And the very next month took the National Symphony Orchestra to Moscow and Leningrad. He had not been able to sleep, so he went out in the street and he was walking down the street and it's like five o'clock in the morning and some old lady is out sweeping the sidewalk or shoveling the snow because it was in the middle of winter. And she stopped and she said, Slava Rostropovich? And he said, yes. And she said, I thought you were dead. It's a miracle. And, and they all treated him like it was a miracle that he was there, that he was alive, that he was still playing, he was still conducting. Even just the dress rehearsal, and they allowed the audience into the dress rehearsal. And in the back of the hall in the Moscow Conservatory, I mean, there's the nice seats up front, but in the back, it's just these benches, hard benches. And maybe there's supposed to be five people in one bench, and there'd be like 12 people just jammed in there like sardines, and they had all paid their five rubles, and they were going to see this if it was the last thing. And you just looked at them, and you saw how desperate they were, and you realized he wasn't kidding. It really was like life and death to them. And for his final encore, Rostropovich chose this American classic, John Philip Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever the traditional finale of the National Symphony Orchestra's annual 4th of July concert on the West Lawn of the Capitol. The Moscow audience you can hear clapping and standing in ovation. Later, amidst bear hugs and vodka toasts at a post-concert reception, Slava was asked why he picked Stars and Stripes Forever. The idea, he said, came from the heart. 
Slava Rostropovich and Vladimir Horowitz, forever Russians, forever American dreamers, thanks to our rule of law. And great job on that, as always. And what a story, folks. The merging and the merger of art and culture and history and, of course, law. And you've never heard it put together like this, and that's what we do each and every day here on Our American Stories. Tell stories you won't hear in our nation's schools or in the media. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, Slava Rostropovich's story, Vladimir Horowitz's story. They're American stories here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And this combines two of our favorite themes, literary themes and historical ones. Paul Revere's Ride is a poem by an American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and it commemorates the actions of American patriot Paul Revere on April 18, 1775. Longfellow was inspired to write the poem after visiting the Old North Church in Boston, and climbing its tower on April 5, 1860. He began writing the poem the very next day. It was published in the January 1861 issue of the Atlantic Monthly. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, If the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Then he said, Good night with muffled oar silently rowed to the Charlestown shore, just as the moon rose over the bay, where swinging wide at her moorings lay the Somerset, British man-of-war, a phantom ship with each mast and spar across the moon like a prison bar, and a huge black hulk that was magnified by its own reflection in the tide. Meanwhile, his friend, through alley and street, wanders and watches with eager ears, till in the silence around him, he hears the muster of men at the barrack door, the sound of arms and the tramp of feet, and the measured tread of the grenadiers marching down to their boats on the shore. Then he climbed the tower of the old north church by the wooden stairs with stealthy tread to the belfry chamber overhead and startled the pigeons from their perch on the somber rafters that round him made masses and moving shapes of shade. By the trembling ladder, steep and tall, to the highest window in the wall, where he paused to listen and looked down a moment on the roofs of the town and the moonlight flowing over all. Beneath, in the churchyard, lay the dead 
in their night encampment on the hill, wrapped in silence so deep and still that he could hear like a sentinel's tread the watchful night wind as it went creeping along from tent to tent and seeming to whisper, All is well. A moment only he feels the spell of the place and the hour and the secret dread of the lonely belfry and the dead. For suddenly all his thoughts are bent on a shadowy something far away where the river widens to meet the bay, a line of black that bends and floats on the rising tide like a bridge of boats. Meanwhile, impatient to mount and ride, booted and spurred with a heavy stride on the opposite shore, walked Paul Revere. Now he patted his horse's side, now gazed at the landscape far and near, then impetuous stamped the earth and turned and tightened his saddle girth. But mostly he watched with eager search the belfry tower of the old North Church as it rose above the graves on the hill. Lonely and spectral and somber and still. And lo, as he looks on the belfry's height, a glimmer and then a gleam of light. He springs to the saddle, the bridle he turns, but lingers and gazes till full on his sight. A second lamp in the belfry burns. A hurry of hoofs in a village street, a shape in the moonlight, a bulk in the dark, and beneath from the pebbles in passing, a spark struck out by a steed flying fearless and fleet. That was all, and yet through the gloom and the light the fate of a nation was riding that night, and the spark struck out by that steed in his flight kindled the land into flame with its heat. He has left the village and mounted the steep, and beneath him, tranquil and broad and deep, is the mystic meeting the ocean tides, and under the alders that skirt its edge, now soft on the sand, now loud on the ledge, is heard the tramp of his steed as he rides. It was twelve by the village clock when he crossed the bridge into Medford town. He heard the crowing of the cock and the barking of the farmer's dog and felt the damp of the river fog that rises after the sun goes down. It was one by the village clock when he galloped into Lexington. He saw the gilded weathercock swim in the moonlight as he passed, and the meeting house windows, blank and bare, gaze at him with a spectral glare, as if they already stood aghast at the bloody work they would look upon. It was two by the village clock when he came to the bridge in Concord town. He heard the bleating of the flock and the twitter of birds among the trees and felt the breath of the morning breeze blowing over the meadows brown. And one was safe and asleep in his bed, who at the bridge would be first to fall, who that day would be lying dead, pierced by a British musket ball. You know the rest. In the books you have read how the British regulars fired and fled, how the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall, chasing the redcoats down the lane, then crossing the fields to emerge again under the trees at the turn of the road and only pausing to fire and load. So through the night rode Paul Revere. And so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore. For born on the night wind of the past, 
through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. And what a reading, and what a story, folks. Longfellow visits the Old North Church, climbs its tower, and out this comes the next day, gets in the Atlantic Monthly, January 1861, still as relevant today as ever this story, reminding us how it all started. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us this story of an unknown hero who was born on this day in history in 1919. Chris Edmonds thought that he had a great dad, but he also thought that he had a relatively normal one. He was my baseball coach, so he was very active in that, loved baseball, and I think he loved the kids more than anything. So he was our head coach, and my uncle was our assistant coach. He played the good cop. Dad was a good cop, my uncle was the bad cop, so to speak. Chris's dad served in World War II. He had a diary from his time there, although he didn't say much about it or the war. And so Chris didn't know much of anything until... My daughter, who was in college at the time, had done a group report for one of her history classes on dad and had used the diary as some of the narrative for a a little short video that they made. And as I watched that video, they just used, the narration was was just word for word out of Dad's diary. And it was just, I'd read it before, and I'd asked Dad when he was living about his experience, and he just never would would share. Like most most men of that day, I mean, he said, son, there's some things I'd rather not talk about. But those words just kind of, seared into my heart and moved me and so one night about midnight a friend of mine said you know they have records military records on on people who've served so maybe you can find out some some things about your dad so i was moved by those words and i also wanted to kind of find out just some basics you know when did he enter the service was it before pearl harbor was it after pearl harbor what units was he assigned to where did he do his basic training i mean i didn't know any of that stuff so i just googled his name and rank on the computer about midnight one night and the first link that comes up which I thought would be maybe the the National Archives or an army site or you know some military site um, it was the New York Times and dad's name and rank Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds was embedded in this article that was written in 2008 by the editor 
and it was written uh, kind of reflecting back on the story of President Nixon stepping down from the presidency and moving back to New York. And the an article was titled Richard Nixon's Search for a New York Home. And so immediately, I mean, that's highlighted, Dad's name's highlighted, and, and I click on the article, I'm thinking, what is Dad's name doing in this article in New York Times? And what does that have to do with President Nixon? You know, I'm like, this is crazy. So I read the article, and it's basically telling the story of how the president wanted to move to New York, and no one wanted him to be their neighbor. Nobody could find him any place to live. I think Mr. Rudin was, was kind of the Donald Trump of the day. He was the big real estate mogul. He couldn't even find a place for the president to move because nobody wanted him. And it goes on to say that a gentleman felt sorry for the president, basically, and offered to sell his townhouse, which was in a very prominent section of New York, to the president. And the president ends up visiting with all of his family and buying it from him. And so in the context of that story, the reporter just asked this gentleman who happened to be Lester Tanner about his life and found out he served in the military and asked about that. And, and basically in the context of that conversation, Lester said, had it not been for the bravery of my Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, um, I wouldn't be here to do what I did. So I read that and I was like, who is Lester Tanner? What did Dad do that was so brave? Or Lester's basically saying, I owe my life to my Master Sergeant. The New York Times left this stunning revelation as a one-paragraph mention in their article, almost as if it was an off-topic side story that they had just forgotten to take out in their editing process. I mean, you, you would think someone would have read that and go, well, who is this Master Sergeant Rowdy Edmonds? Let's go try to find out who this guy was. And if it would be anyone, you'd think it would be the same publication, that the New York Times would be excited that they might have just stumbled upon a great story. Well, that has crossed my mind many times is, you know, why did they just kind of leave that, you know, for dead, basically, just left it alone? Thankfully, it wasn't uninteresting to Chris. And so he decided to take their job and play reporter. So I began looking for Lester. I've been searching for him and tracked him down finally. It, was, it took me about three or four months. Finally found a phone number and was able to call him and talk to him for the first time. And here's what Lester told him. It was 1944. The 106th Infantry Division had landed in France some 90 days after D-Day. So the division consisted of the 422nd Regiment, the 423rd, and the 424th Regiments. And Dad was in the 422nd. And it was winter time, so they began a difficult journey across France. The winter was brutal that year. It's one of the worst on record in Germany and in Europe. When they reached the Chennai Eiffel, which is just kind of a rugged mountain range in Belgium near the German border, they got there on December 10th. And the soldiers took up their places along that 26-mile front, which was really a thin line of Allied troops protecting that area. And Dad's regiment took the forward position. So when the Germans came through, Dad and his men were at the point of the spear. So they took the first brunt 
of that heavy assault. And then on the 16th, the 422nd was the first to be surprised by the massive German assault. The Germans had 400,000 troops amassed in that area, 1,600 artillery guns, and 1,200 tanks. And the Allied force, mostly Americans, they had rifles and a little bit of artillery, maybe a few tanks, but they didn't have that kind of firepower. Plus, the 422nd had not seen action, so they were green. So the Battle of the Bulge began. The Allied forces, they were just greatly outnumbered and outmatched. Dad's regiment was quickly cut off, surrounded, but they continued to fight with all they had. But most of the 422nd were either killed or captured. Dad, in his diary, speaks of stepping outside for a moment and a bullet whistling by his head and embedding into the building just two inches above his head. And he basically says, you know, I, I really thank God that, that he spared me. And then later that day, I mean, the battle broke open and Dad and several other men had formed a convoy and was sent by the Colonel to try to punch a way out. They thought they'd found a way out and they actually got stopped because the front jeep hit a mine and exploded and blew everybody out of the jeep and they stopped to help and then they were quickly surrounded. He also was ultimately captured along with more than 20,000 GIs during the battle and the men of the 422nd were stripped of their winter clothes. They were forced to march some 50 kilometers over rugged icy terrain to Kerosene, Germany where they were loaded on the train. They spent the first night in a churchyard in Blayoff, Germany where the men, they, they basically slept on top of each other in order to stay warm and not freeze to death. They said they, they slept in pyramids on top of each other. There were several men who couldn't march, and if you didn't march, you didn't last. And so uh, the ones who couldn't make it uh, were shot or left for dead. And so they were locked in overcrowded boxcars at the train station, standing room only, no food, no water, no way out. These trains were unmarked. My personal opinion is they were unmarked on purpose. They should have had a red cross on the top of the trains to signify to any of the Allied Air Forces that this was a POW train, but they didn't. So all the American boys spent seven harsh days, really between walking and riding in trains, freezing weather, traveling to Stalag 9B, that orb. It was their first POW again. And they arrived there on Christmas Day. Of course, at Bad Orb, it was one of the worst, if not the worst, German POW camps. There were thousands of American GIs crammed into that camp. They were there for about four weeks, and Dad and the other NCOs... Non-commissioned officers. ...were taken, and they were sent to Stalag 98 Ziegenhain. So it's at Ziegenhain where Dad became the highest-ranking American soldier there. He was responsible for all the Americans in that camp. 1,272 Americans. And what would he do or not do? How would he lead or not lead all of these men? That story after the break.
And we continue with the story of Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds. To learn how Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds led these men, most of whom he had never met before they were in prison together, and how he saved Lester Tanner's life, we hear from the person who has a brother because of him, Lester's sister, Corinne. The Germans announced the night before to have all the Jewish prisoners all lined up in the front, and they wanted them all to step out. And the next morning, Roddy Edmonds had all the American soldiers that were under his command to come out in front of the barracks. So there was a large group, close to a thousand soldiers, lined up in military formation in front. And when the German commander came out, he looked at the group and he said to Roddy, well, they all can't be Jews. About 200 of them were. The other 1,072 soldiers weren't. So Roddy said, we are all Jews here. And he was shocked, the commander, and he put the gun next to Roddy's forehead, next to his head, and he said to him, if you don't have all the Jewish soldiers step out now, then I will kill you right here. And Roddy stood there, and there was a silence, and Roddy said, according to the Geneva Convention, if a soldier is captured, he is only to, to give his name, his rank, and his serial number. And then he said, if you kill me now, you have to kill all of us, because we all know who you are, and when the war is over, you will be tried as a war criminal. And when he heard that, the German commander, he just walked away. Her brother Lester, a Jew, survived that day along with the other Jews and was able to come home because of Roddy Edmonds and his courage, his willingness to sacrifice his own life for the lives of others. Others who weren't of his same faith. Roddy was a Christian. Lester comes home, and one day, he invites a friend from the war, Paul Stern, over to their family's home. He came over, and my mother had set out the table for them, and they they had lost so much weight, both of them. She had pastries and milk for them to drink, and I was in another room, and when I came out, he tells the story. Paul does. The French doors opened, he said, and she came out, his sister, and I came out, and I met him for the first time, and he said, I fell in love with her immediately, and I always added, well, I I wasn't so sure immediately. And as you probably guessed by now, this wouldn't be the only time that Paul and Corinne would meet. But uh, that was Paul's story. Two years later, we were married. 
Corinne was able to marry the love of her life because Roddy saved Lester's life, allowing Lester to do something so simple as bring his friend Paul into their home. And then this story gets even stranger. A very interesting part was that when my granddaughter, Diana, was in college, one of her classes, she had to do a project, something concerning a hero of hers. And it was also a program run by a World War II veteran, was the professor. And he wanted, if they had any information or anything related to that. So she had written this report. It was titled, My Grandpa Went to War. So that's when he really started to talk. He didn't really discuss it with the children or grandchildren. Or with his wife, Corinne, for that matter. But his granddaughter opened him up. Maybe he did it just to help her. Or maybe enough time had passed and he was ready. So we had that report. And in that report, he finally did come through with everything and tell the story. The story that he, too was saved by Roddy Edmonds. He said that confrontation only lasted a few moments when it actually happened at the POW camp, but he would remember it the rest of his life. And this was also the very first moment that Corinne learned that her brother Lester was saved by Roddy. Neither of them told the story to anyone. Their family only learned of it because of a granddaughter's school project. And the world only learned of it because Lester sold his house to Richard Nixon. You know, in my readings during the years, I came upon the quote that said, if you save one life, if you save one life, you save the world. It's very meaningful because if you really think about it in depth, the fact that he saved these Jewish soldiers, they would have never married, they would have never had children, grandchildren, and my brother has great-grandchildren. I have five grandchildren, no great-grandchildren yet. But when you really think about it, it has a lot of depth to it, and you realize all the people that would have never been here that have produced and have done great things in the world after that. And to close, back to Roddy's son Chris on the animating force in his dad's life that led him to do what he did. He was very active in the local church, but he was also active in a singing ministry that he had. It was just a, he never made any money at it, but he, he sang at a lot of revivals and a lot of church functions. There's one song in particular that I'd heard him sing several times, and it's not a widely known song, but it is a song that he sang several times, and typically he would give a word of testimony before he sang any song he would, but particularly on this one, he would let everybody know he was in World War II, he was a POW, and that's where he felt called to sing for God, because he, he was a man of faith, even as a young man. You know, he surrendered his life to Christ as a teenager. He never told me any of this either. I've just been picking this up through my research and, and talking with folks that knew him growing up. So he came to Christ as a teenager, and he was the real deal. I mean, it, he really followed Christ. 
I think that's why he stood up for his men in that camp. It, it was a sense of duty as, as being their, their leader, but it was also he had surrendered his life to Christ and he had already died to Christ and come alive to him. And he, he believed in his heart and his mind he was never going to die anyway. If he leaves this planet, he's going to go to a better life to be live with his Lord. And so um, he was going to do what was right. He's going to do what God would do. He's going to stand up for his men. And in the face of death, I mean, he'd already died, so you can't do anything more to him. So I'm, I'm going to do the right thing. But this song is uh, called, I'm a Private in the Army of the Lord. I'll just read you a couple of lines to it. Verse 1 is, I have just enlisted in the service of my King, Christ my Lord and King, blessed Lord and King. Tis a royal service, and with gladness now I sing, as I march against old Satan's war. Jesus is my captain, and he leads me all the while, leads me all the while, leads me all the while. I am not a hero, but I'm in that rank and file. I'm a private in the army of the Lord. And great work, Alex, and thank you to everyone who contributed to this remarkable story. Master Sergeant Roddy, Edmund's story, all of the lives he saved, my goodness, all the lives he saved, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're hearing the music of a great American city, New Orleans, or if you spent a lot of time there, New Orleans. And by the way, I have, my wife and I got married there, she's a Biloxi girl, Biloxi, Mississippi, and New Orleans is, well, it's not far away, that's the home city for her, home football team, home everything. And New Orleans is perhaps the most recognizable well, cuisine in America, shrimp, po' boys, oysters, Rockefeller, the list goes on. This next story isn't just about food, though. It's about one of the most important chefs in America today, a woman who provided a place for the civil rights movement to change the nation, but also cooked up some really great Creole food while doing so. Here's Monty Montgomery and Liz Williams, author of New Orleans, a food biography, with the story of Leah Chase. She's fed everyone from George W. Bush to Barack Obama. Ray Charles would write a song about her restaurant where Martin Luther King Jr. and other activists would draft plans for the civil rights movement. And Tiana from the animated Disney movie The Princess and the Frog was inspired by her. Leah Chase is the Queen of Creole and is still cooking today. And every day Dookie Chases is open, even at the age of 95. Well, certainly as a, a role model for how to age, she's, she's it. I mean, that's something that she just is, never gives up, never sat down and said, oh, I'm gonna eat bonbons now or whatever, you know. She's definitely still goes to her restaurant every day, um, but she's just such a role model in so many other ways. So starting out, she worked in 
the kitchens of uh, white restaurants and during the Jim Crow South period. And these were often white tablecloth restaurants where she was working. And she noticed that black people didn't really have restaurants. So she was getting married to a man named Dookie Chase and his family had a, a bar and sandwich shop. And so she said, let's turn this into a real restaurant for African-Americans. Leah Chase would marry Edgar Dookie Chase II, a musician by trade, in 1946. But the sandwich stand that would later become the famed restaurant it is today had very humble beginnings. And a bit of luck, literally. Here's Leah Chase. Well, my mother-in-law first started this. And the reason she started it because her husband was sickly. And he was, he would go out and people from Chicago and all the places, you would call his job a numbers runner. But in New Orleans, we were very sophisticated. So it wasn't a numbers runner, it was a lottery vendor. <laughs> so you see, we put class to that. But that's how he did. And he'll, he couldn't go from house to house for, to get his clients and all that. So because he was sick, so she opened up this little sandwich shop. But so she did that and not knowing anything. But she knew she could make a sandwich. She knew she could cook. And she borrowed $600 from a brewery. Can you imagine starting a business today with $600? and no knowledge of what you're doing. She was a good money manager, that I'm not. My husband used to call me a bankrupt sister to come to bankrupt. <laughs> She'll spend everything you got, and I would. And Leah Chase wasn't just opening the doors of cuisine to people who'd been shut out of it for so long. She was also opening the doors of her restaurant to everyone in the community. She had this, this kind of streak in her that was so generous. So if people who lived in the neighborhood couldn't, couldn't afford the food, she would take a, a, a painting or she would take something else from them. And so she has one of the best collections of African-American art that you will ever see. And it's all on display in the restaurant. In addition to that, she, um, she opened her doors to white people. And that was totally against the law. But through just the fact that she made everybody behave and all of that sort of thing, and she had good relationships with the police, they turned a blind eye to it. And they actually, she, you know, a mayor, the mayor could come or the police chief could come and meet with people that he might need to meet with in the uh, African-American community at Dookie Chase. So there was actually a useful political purpose to some of this. But then it also became a place where you could, the, the planning of the, the civil rights movement happened there. And so she was involved in all of this and was so wonderful about opening her doors. By the 1960s, Dookie Chase's wasn't just changing the way people came together around a plate of food. He was also providing a space for people to come together looking to change America. And I don't know how we did it, but as I said, my mother-in-law was a kind, kind person. And you didn't have any African-Americans on a police force at that time. They were all white. But they would come around and she would say, 
Bebe, I'm a fix your little sandwich. So she would fix them a sandwich, give them a little, today they would call that bribery. <laughs> But she was just that kind of person. She liked to do things for you. She liked to give. So she would do that. Maybe that helped us out because nobody ever bothered us. We had Jim Dombrowski, all the Ben Smith who started what this all kinds of things right in that restaurant, and nobody ever bothered us. But once you got inside those doors, nobody ever, ever bothered you. The police would never come in and bother our customers, never. So they felt safe to come there. They could eat, they could plan. All the Freedom Riders, that's where we planned, they planned all their meetings. They would come, and we would serve them a bowl of gumbo and fried chicken. So I said, we changed the course of America over a bowl of gumbo and some fried chicken. The primary purpose of a restaurant is to serve food. But the obvious secondary purpose is to provide a place where people can come together and talk to each other face to face. Dookie Chase has provided that space to people who were previously unable to. And talking is something that Leah Chase still places a high value on today. That's what we're not doing. We're not talking. Come together. I don't care if you're Republican or what you are. Come together. Talk. And I know those old guys. I was friendly with old guys like Tip O'Neill and all those people. They knew how to come together and talk. And, and you would disagree. Maybe that's okay. But you would talk and we would come to a good thing and meet. And so that's what we did in that restaurant. Even at 95, Leah Chase continues to work in her restaurant every single day it's open. And also continues to open the doors to everyone in the New Orleans community and beyond. And she's not planning on settling down anytime soon. It's just not in her nature. Keep trying to do a little bit every day. Every day you do a little bit, try to make it better. And that's been my whole life. Well, I came up in the country, small town, had to do everything, had to haul the water, had to wash the clothes, do this, do that, pick the dumb strawberries, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> But still, my daddy insisted that we act nice, we kind. And you know, my mother taught us, she was tough on us. And she said, you know, Leah, she taught, gave us all this plaque. To be a good woman, you have to first look like a girl. Well, I thought I looked like a girl. Act like a lady. That I never learned to do. <laughs> Think like a man. Now, don't act like that man. Think like a man and work like a dog. <laughs> so we learned that the hard way. And they taught you that. They taught you what women had to do. We were taught that Women control the behavior of men. How you act, they will act. The change Leah brought to America can't be understated. She is a revolutionary, but she's still on the move, never looking back, but always looking forward. And she has some advice on that. The thing we have to do in, in this city, in all cities, mamas have to start being mamas today, you know? They have to start understanding when you bring this child in the world, you have to make a man out of it, you have to make a woman out of it. And that takes some doing. It takes sacrifice, 
Maybe you won't have long fingernails, maybe you won't have the pretty hair, but a child will be on the move. And that's what you have to do. We have to concentrate on educating and making these children understand what it's all about. Sometimes you do hard things to make changes. And that's what you have to tell young people today. Okay, you can protest, you can do, but put the past behind you. I can't make you responsible for what your grandfather did. That's your grandfather. I have to build on that. I have to make changes. I can't stay there and say, oh, well, look what they did us then. Look what they did us now. You remember that, but that makes you keep going on. But you don't hop on it every day. You move, and you move to make a difference. And everybody should be involved. My children said, Mother, don't get political, you know. <laughs> don't get political, because you know we don't like that. But you have to be political today. You have to be involved. Be a part of the system. And great work, as always, to Monty Montgomery, our intrepid Hillsdale intern. And thanks to Hillsdale, to Dr. Larry Arn, the folks there for lending us their best and brightest each and every summer. Thanks to Liz Williams, author of New Orleans, a food biography. And thank you for the story of Leah Chase, her story here on Our American Stories. <laughs>